Many of my predecessors had been surgeons on carriers, so they gave me great advice on how to set myself up for success. But ultimately, when you're in the middle of the Indian Ocean and there's a patient that needs a bower section, there's no senior partner you can call in. You're typically doing the case with one of those GMOs. You may grab the oral surgeon, or you may do the case with an 18-year-old who's never seen a stapler before. So you grow up as far as your judgment and your skills extremely quickly because there's no other option. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Captain Dr. Eric Elster to War Docs. Dr. Elster received his undergraduate and medical degrees from the University of South Florida in Tampa. He completed a general surgery residency at the National Naval Medical Center in Maryland and is board certified in general surgery and transplant surgery. Dr. Elster currently serves as the Dean of the School of Medicine at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. You can learn more about his bio on wardockspodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear about Dr. Elster's journey to becoming a combat-tested general surgeon who later completed a transplant surgery fellowship at the NIH. He describes some amazing clinical cases he experienced during his deployments, and he covers the importance of translational research in answering important questions about diagnostics and therapies for traumatic injuries. Captain Elster talks about his innovative approach to how military medicine can quantify and measure battlefield readiness and how to improve it. He also talks about the clinical role USHUS plays as America's medical school and some of the exciting initiatives and opportunities he is developing as dean. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl, and I'm joined by Army vascular surgeon, Dr. Kevin Neary. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Captain, Dr. Eric Elster to War Docs. Eric, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a privilege to be here. So, Dr. Elster, you entered the military through HPSV while at the University of South Florida. What influenced your decision to join the military? Yeah, it was a strong desire to serve, honestly. I knew from a very young age I wanted to serve. And going the HPSP route, or any of our routes for that matter, allows us to do the, probably the two most honorable things that can be done on this planet, which is serve our nation, take care of patients. So the combination for me was a natural fit. How did you get interested in general surgery? And what do you think about the quality of your experience training in the military system in DC? So I, I knew from a very young age, my mom would tell you she was still around and I wanted to be a doctor since I was the age of six. So I knew I wanted to be a doctor and I... I'm a pretty persistent guy, so I stuck with it. And then the decision to be a surgeon actually came from a television show, Paul. Back when I was growing up, there's a television show called Seen Elsewhere. Uh, you may, you probably remember it. And yeah, for I, the, got, I got the gray hair. Yeah, we have the gray hair. But for the younger generation, it was the Grey's Anatomy of its time. And in that show, the surgeons were the problem solvers. And again, I've learned since then that, listen, everyone's a problem solver, but it took the ability to do things with your hands and your brain really appealed to me. And so I got interested in surgery from that television show. I had some great surgical role models in medical school, and I loved every single one of my clinical rotations. I tried to absorb as much as possible, but surgery stood out above the rest, so I stuck with it. Like I mentioned, I had these great mentors in medical school, both of which actually who had served in the military, one in Vietnam, Dr. Larry Carey, 
and Dr. Tom Krizik, who was a Marine, then served in Navy medicine, known as an iconic plastic surgeon. And they reinforced that I had made the right decision to join the military. And so I finished my medical school and then I moved up to D.C. and did my surgery training at Bethesda. This was before the merger between the two hospitals. So when I say Bethesda, I'm talking about National Naval Medical Center. Now we call Walter Reed Classic, but that was the old Walter Reed. And I had fantastic residency training experience. This was before the eight-hour work week. But one of the focuses of that program was appropriate graduated autonomy, meaning as you progress through the years, you were giving, given more free reign when appropriate. And I think our program, even to this day, meaning that the, the general surgery training program at now Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, had maintained that graduated autonomy, supervision at the right times. I think the graduation probably is a little later in the autonomy than it did when I was training, but that really prepared me for my future career. It was a really one of those foundational elements of my life or my residency. Now, one of the things that a lot of folks don't realize that aren't part of military medicine, and, and this was kind of a bigger deal back in the day when we trained, but sometimes after internship, especially in the Navy and also in the Army for surgical specialties, interns went out to be general medical officers. Now, did you have that experience? And if you did, how was it? Yeah, so I had the privilege of going out for a year and serving with the 31st EU SOC, and I'll explain, I'll explain the acronym. 31st MU, which is the Marine Expedition Unit Special Operations Capable, was forward deployed out of Okinawa, Japan. And a MU essentially is a small Marine Army that deploys on amphibious ships. So it's com composed of a battalion, an air combat element, and a support element. And those Marines come together and they can be pre-positioned on those ships and support themselves internally for 30 days. So a MU comes with all the supplies they need, all the ammunition they need, air support, including the helicopters and Harriers, and the ability to do uh, beach landings. And this SOC, the Special Operations Capable, is at the time, and I, I'm estimating there were about 30 some odd different special operations missions that the MU had to be certified in. So I was assigned to, that, to the MU SOC as a, just out of my internship, as a doctor for 2,000 Marines that like to do Marine things, uh, jump out of a helicopter, shoot weapons. And it was a very maturing experience, similar to the experience I had as a general surgeon, which we'll talk about later, on the Kitty Hawk. But as a really young doctor in the clinical care arena, I was faced with caring for patients essentially without a safety net, making decisions about their disposition. But it also, just as importantly, introduced me to the operational side of military medicine and really got me aware of the ethos of military medicine. There's a great story I like to tell about that experience, and it has to do with fast roping. So if you'll spare me a second, I'll tell that story. It's and I think it's it's important because it really gets the reflection of the whole ethos of band of brothers or band of sisters. So as part of the MUSOC training, one of the scenarios that we were responsible for was to go ahead and rescue hostages on a cruise liner. And this was modeled after an incident that happened on the 80s on the Aquila Moro cruise liner in the middle of the Mediterranean. So the scenario here was they would take a military supply ship that was the cruise ship. And we would board the ship. And so during the training exercises, one of the, the ways, there were two ways to board. We would have a small sealed detachment 
that would get on the rig boats and try to go alongside the vessel. And then there were the Marines at the time. These were the uh, Force Recon Marines. They were the what's called the direct action platoon. They would fly in two sticks. And for those of you not familiar, a stick is the amount of people in a helicopter. I think it was about 12. And they would fast rope on the, down onto the deck of the ship. So I learned to do that from the Marines in the well deck, which is the open area in the middle of the ship where they store the landing craft. But there was enough space there that we could practice fast roping. And fast roping essentially is there's a rope that goes down and you control your descent with the rope with hands with clubs on the inside of your thighs. There's no uh, carabiners, there's no safety equipment. But doing it in the well deck to a, on a mat would seem pretty straightforward. The first time I did it, quote, for real, was in the exercise that I just was describing. I remember very clearly our hel- helicopter goes and I have uh, 11 Marines and Navy corpsmen with me. And the, this was on a CH-46, so the ramp goes down in the back, the rope goes out, and the Marines officer goes first. So I have all my stuff on me. I have my body armor and my medical unit and my weapon. And I go out to fast rope down, but my perspective is when I'm looking out, all I see is water. And, and the boat's moving, the helicopter's moving. You know, and I think to myself in that nanosecond, I'm like, what are you doing? You're going to go on this rope. You're going to fall right into the water and you have all this gear and you're going to drown. And you're a a doctor. And then I turn around, I look at these 11 faces looking at me and I just go. Because it wasn't about, at the time, it wasn't about me. It really wasn't about country. It wasn't about any notional things. It was about those 11 at the time, men that were looking at me to go. So to make a long story short, they would record these on VHS tapes and we'd watch them afterwards. And I remember watching it with my, my fellow Marines at the time. And it was like a movie. Seals, the first helicopter, fast roping. Second helicopter, fast roping. The third helicopter, rope goes down. And there's this guy inching his way down the rope. And I'm like, who is that? And like, that's you, Doc. Nice. Yeah, it's amazing to me. I had the opportunity to be a general medical officer too. And it was one of the best years. You're totally right. You really understand the operational side of whatever military service you're working for. And it kind of shaped the rest of my career. Just that one year that I spent in Korea. Did you ever feel like you were over your head, you're wet behind the ears intern, and you got a bunch of healthy people, but they, they can do some crazy things to themselves. Oh, there's no doubt. Marines like to play with snakes. Marines like to get hurt. You know, I never felt I was out of my depth. I had a pretty good internship, good medical school training. But there were certain nights that I stayed awake. Uh, I remember doing this one seemingly minor procedure. As you grow up, you learn that there's no such thing as minor surgery. You know, this patient had come in with a shelf tissue, I think, on his forehead. And you're young, you're eager, you want to pop things out and do procedures, especially if you want to be a surgeon. So I went to do that and it turned out it was an AVM, arterial venous malformation, and started bleeding like stink and got control. And I, and I knew what to do to get control. And I put a pressure bandage on it and I wrapped this guy's poor head up like a mummy. And I stayed by his bedside all night because I just, I was a little, a little nervous. I, I, you wonder if you get it over your head. But it was that level of attention to detail that was really important to be successful. And as you pointed out, it was a, it was a, another foundational experience. So when you finished that, you returned to your residency training in general surgery. 
And we talked to another guest who was doing a vascular surgery fellowship in DC on 9-11, and you were a chief resident in general surgery at that time. Tell us about your experience on that day and what was going in your mind. Did your world change on that day like just about everybody else, and how did it? Yeah, so I, I do remember the day fairly clearly, like many do all of our generation. I was sitting in my call room between cases, prepping for the next case, looking at the anatomy and the steps and so forth, and I got a Page, this was the era of Pagers, my wife, who was a CRNA student. She was, she was at Walter Reed Classic doing a case or in between cases. She called me and said, something happened at the Pentagon. Turn on the news. So I turned on the news and of course saw what happened. And I knew the world had changed from watching that. I just didn't realize how much it had changed and the impact on my personal career at that time. You know, and what we did was immediately we got all the surgeons to uh, muster together and we stood around basically all afternoon and into the night waiting for casualties and the casualties never came. Uh, but for me, I mentioned before, the world changed, but my career path changed. At that point, I was confident I was going to be a transplant surgeon. I had figured that piece out, but I was going to serve my time as a transplant surgeon in the military, get out, and go into the academic world of transplant surgery. And that's not what the cards had in for me. Shortly after you completed your general surgery residency, you deployed on the USS Kitty Hawk as a ship surgeon in the Persian Gulf during Iraqi freedom. Tell us about that experience as a surgeon and what it was like to live on an aircraft carrier. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I was assigned to be the surgeon on the USS Kitty Hawk. And for perspective, and you have to think of an aircraft carrier as like the combination of an airport and a factory at sea. And when the air wing is on, I mean, the airplanes are on board, it's 5,500 people. And the carrier never goes to war by itself. It's part of a carrier battle group. So there's a cruiser, there's destroyers, there's submarines, there's replenishment ships. So it's about 8,500 people on these ships. So you get, essentially, it starts to become a small city. And on the medical side, you have a general surgeon, you have an anesthesia provider, they're an anesthesiologist or a CRNA. You have an ICU nurse. You have anywhere from three or four general medical officers. One is a ship's GMO, the person that I was five or six years earlier, a couple of flight surgeons that are assigned to the air wing. And then you'll have a senior medical officer who is responsible for the department. And that senior medical officer may come from a a different specialty like psychiatry or aerospace medicine. So oftentimes you find yourself as a senior clinician on that particular ship. From the point of view as a surgeon, uh, you know, it was, and I was extremely well prepared for it. Many of my predecessors had been surgeons on carriers, so they gave me great advice on how to set myself up for success. But ultimately, when you're in the middle of the Indian Ocean and and there's a patient that needs a bowel section, there's no senior partner you can call in. You're typically doing the case with one of those GMOs You may grab the oral surgeon and an oral surgeon on board, or you may do the case with an 18-year-old who's never seen a stapler before. So you get very, you grow up as far as your judgment and your skills extremely quickly because there's no other option. And then the other piece of it is the scope of practice. You're doing, you know, the general surgery things. So even the Bauer section I mentioned, that was pretty familiar territory. But we had lots of orthopedic injuries. We had hand crush injuries. And I had had the, the foresight or my training program, the foresight to have us do a hand rotation somewhere during my residency. So I was prepared for that. 
And then there were the sick medical patients we had to take care of. You know, I had patients we, on, on a ship like that. There's a lot of contractors, some of which are older, some of which have heart attacks. When you have to manage an acute myocardial infarction, fortunately, general surgery lends itself to management of medical conditions. And then there were some pretty spectacular cases. I remember doing a foreign fasciotomy on a patient that needed to be in the ICU. And I had never done a foreign fasciotomy. I'd done lower extremity fasciotomies, of course. Uh, but I was well prepared and, and I had the requisite material I needed to prep for that case. And it went well. But that was a critical experience coming back because you really regain your, quote, sea legs as a surgeon from doing something like that. So what was it that, that caused him to require a forearm fasciotomy? Yeah, this was a mariner, so a civilian, who was working on one of those support ships. I remember I said factory at sea, so he got his forearm crushed between a loading machine and the bulkhead of the ship and had, you know, a compartment syndrome of his forearm. And we had to do all the medical management plus do that forearm fasciotomy. And we saved that guy's arm for sure. And I, without care, saved his life. Were you able to transfer him off the ship or were you in a place where you couldn't do that? And how did you handle that? If you had someone who's really sick and you're in the middle of the Indian Ocean and the tyranny of distances is bad. Yeah, well, if you're in the middle of the Indian Ocean, there is no acute transfer. So you're just too far away, even typically with refueling. So you just manage the patient at hand. You very quickly learn what it means to transfer a patient off a ship. And that's a special bond of trust you have between you, that chief medical officer, and the captain of the ship. Because when you make the decision to transfer a patient off the ship, you know, it's a decision you make. But the second, third, or consequences of that are pretty remarkable. For example, these flight ops. They get suspended. They have to clear the deck. They have to arrange, if you're too far away for a helicopter, they have to arrange for a COD, a special type of aircraft, to fly that patient off. So all of that requires a whole logistical tale. You know, you try to use your judgment to transfer only the sickest patients that need to be transferred off. So you manage a lot of those patients on the carrier itself because of, one, the incidents that you mentioned in the middle of the Indian Ocean, you really can't. Two, what can you manage? And you have a you have a small ICU, you have a ward, so there's a lot you can manage on that carrier. And it takes it takes a sense of judgment when to transfer a patient. I do remember this one patient that we transferred before we went to OIF, and we were doing something off the coast of Japan. And I remember there was this young man who came in who was sick, and I use this word sick for a particular reason, and. He just was not quite right. His platelet count was off. He was tachycardic, but he was young. He had tons of reserve. And I remember knowing that he had something that was making him very sick. And I don't remember the details of it, but I remember having a conversation with the senior medical officer and the anesthesiologist saying, listen, this guy's really sick. We need to get him off the carrier. And like, no, he looks fine. I said, trust me, he's not fine. And I did, and they trusted me, and the captain trusted me, transferred him. And that young man wound up with preaching viral myocarditis, innovated on pressures in the ICU a couple of days later. So you get the sense of when someone's really sick and then your own capabilities and when you need to move them to the next level of care. So tell us what it was like to live in the airport factory. You know, your first two weeks on the carrier is amazing. Like you want to see everything. You don't spend a lot of time on the flight deck because dangerous place and you don't have a reason to be there, but you want to go in every space and see everything. After that, it's almost like you're 
stuck on the fifth floor of the hospital where your call room is. And for some reason, the cafeteria is on the fifth floor. That's what it's really like. So the floor I lived on, medical was on that floor. My stateroom, which is where you sleep, was on that floor. And I shared a room with the oral surgeon. The wardroom or the main wardroom for the ship was on that floor. The wardroom is where the officers come and eat. There's actually several wardrooms on the ship, but this was the main one for the ones that were assigned to the ship as opposed to the airway. The hospital and the ORC were on that deck. So you spent the majority of your time on that particular deck of the ship. You don't really see the sun very often, at least directly over your head. You can go out to the side of the ship and look at the horizon, but that's covered. So the only time you're seeing the sun is if you go up to the superstructure for a particular reason and look up and you see the sun. But it was it was amazing. I got assigned to the Admiral's battle staff because my boss, then Smo, had his meeting with the EXO the same time the Admiral had his meeting with the battle staff. So I was the medical guy, which we, we call it a bad backbencher. It had a main table with the the Admiral in charge of the battle group, his EXO, the CAG and responsible for the planes, the CEO of the ship, the Commodore, the intelligence person, all the principals are on the table. And I had one of these other seats in the back. And I watched the planning and execution of the war from those seats. And my routine was I'd wake up in the morning, I'd round on the ward, grab a quick breakfast, go up to that particular meeting, and then go down, do my cases, if I had cases, see my clinic, and then carry on with life. You completed a solid organ transplantation fellowship at the NIH after your deployment. Why did you choose a career in transplant surgery? And what does the military need transplant surgeons for? Yeah, it goes back to the discussion we had about that chain elsewhere, where I felt that transplant allowed me to have the best combination of what I can do with my hands and my brain. And transplant requires, transplant surgery requires technical precision. You can't, you only get one shot at the vascular anastomosis when you do a transplant. Plus the immunology of what we're doing with rejection is just remarkable. The story of the immunology, the science beyond the immunology, and both of those really appealed to me. And I had a great mentor who is now a colleague and a friend and actually a partner in our research, in one of the research programs I lead, the Surgical Critical Care Initiative. And that's Dr. Alan Kirk, who's the, now the chair of surgery at Duke. And Alan had just finished his transplant fellowship and his training in and I had met him while I was in what all junior residents do, which is hold hooks during a big liver resection. And he was doing it with the chief and we started chatting. I told him I wanted to do research. He said, well, come in the lab and actually start doing research with him before my formal research year. And I went into that research year committed to being a plastic surgeon. I knew I was going to be a plastic surgeon. I mean, one of my mentors that I mentioned before is a plastic surgeon. I even had a plan with my brother to do my kind, get out and open an aesthetic surgery practice down in Miami. And I had these scrum tops with the arms cut out, all set up. And one Alan turned to me once and said, Eric, he didn't say you're wasted as a plastic surgeon. Plastic surgeons are phenomenal. But he goes, you know, you really should be a transplant surgeon. And you're in the military and someone like that said that to you, you're like, yes, sir. And funny story, years later, I finished my transplant training and I trained with him. And we, he called me one night and said, hey, Eric, we're doing like a redo pancreas. And it was one of those cases, it's adhesions everywhere. You have to chip through the adhesions before you can show the pancreas and, and show the kidney in. And it just takes all night. And that's transplant surgery. And I remember looking at him. I said, Alan, blankety blank you. He goes, and I was kidding. He goes, what? 
you ruined my plan to be a plastic surgeon. I could be down in Miami in my mansion with my long hair and my Ferrari. But no, it was the right decision. And then you asked me about transplant surgery, its relevance to military medicine. As a transplant surgeon, you are definitely prepared for the technical aspects of the highest end trauma surgery that you see. Because remember, as transplant surgeons, when we do our procurement, we're all over the abdomen in all the spaces. We do vascular anastomosis. We do urological anastomosis. So from that perspective, I think you are definitely ready. And then the science also prepared me for my career as a surgical scientist. Throughout your career, you directed a translational research program focused on developing diagnostic therapies for traumatic injuries. What does translational research mean? And can you tell us about some of your primary research interests? Translational research means starting with a problem and then working through the science to solve the problem so you can provide better clinical care. And for me, it came out of the combination of my experience with Alan Kirk, both as a resident and doing my transplant training and caring for casualties that were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and on the Bethesda campus. And as I was finishing my fellowship at Bethesda Naval Hospital, we set up a trauma survey. At the time, there were only a couple of trauma attendings that we had. So our, our, our chief looked at us and looked at about three or four or five of us and said, listen, I want you all to be on the trauma on the trauma service. And I think he, he trusted our judgment. He trusted our clinical skills. He trusted our ability to interact with patients. And as I was taking care of these patients that came back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and, and we were, if you recall, the largest injury pattern that you see are extremity injuries, about 65% of combat casualties. And we were closing these wounds. And when I say closing, I mean delayed primary closure. You put a wound back on, you do two, three, four washouts, you bring the skin edges together or putting a, a skin graft or sometimes even a flap. We were doing that, uh, but those wounds were failing 15, 20-ish percent of the time. The wound would dehiss or there'd be an, uh, a wound infection that you had to essentially start over or the flap would fill. And that was despite all of the clinical indicators suggesting that wound was ready. Nice granulation tissue had contractility. The patient wasn't sick per se, didn't have a white count or elevated platelet count. So it, it was obvious to me at the time there was something going on that I couldn't see with my eyes. And I had just finished this transplant fellowship. We were doing this, at the time, amazing work where we were doing a kidney transplant. You would get a kidney biopsy. We would run, we'd take that sample down the hall and do this novel technology back then, which is commonplace now, but real-time PCR to look at the transcripts associated with what was happening in the kidney. We're trying to tie the biology what's happening within the kidney at the molecular level with what we are seeing clinically with respect to rejection and the like. The light bulb went off in my head and said, well, can we do these do the same thing with these wounded warriors with their wounds? Can I get this fluid from the wound back and their tissue biopsy? Can I look for protein, genes and the like? Can we call it clinical data? And we started that effort. And that was the genesis for the surgical critical care initiative which is one of the centers now at USU. But the key finding there was it wasn't just the physical destructive nature of these injuries that resulted in complications. And those complications eventually extended beyond just wound failure to include pneumonia, blood clots, acute kidney injury. 
wasn't just the physical destructive, destructive nature of the injuries, but the body's response to those injuries. And we could start to measure those in a reliable fashion. And then the final piece of the puzzle was analyzing the data with machine learning or AI. So we could eventually start to build clinical decision support tools, which is what we've done in the SC2I. So what area of military-related research are you most excited about or expect the most progress and advances in the next 10 years? In my role as dean, it gives me the opportunity to really coalesce or bring together resources and really, really smart people. And at USU, we have a tremendous research program. We do everything from very basic cell culture work. We have one of the largest sequencing centers in the country, all the way through a multi-center clinical trials. But like any academic institution, there are silos. And we all know these silos. For example, people in the same hall are doing the same work and they don't even realize it. So what I've attempted to do it as dean is to try to connect those dots between those silos by developing what we call research hubs. And these hubs are designed to bring in multiple of our centers and departments together to answer critical questions within that particular research domain. So the three hubs that we've launched are around brain health, uh, which encompasses TBI, but not just TBI, and has our centers and departments that are working in that space. And for example, if you know anything about TBI, you realize multiple people touch a TBI patient or a TBI research program. PM&R physicians deal with TBI. Family medicine physicians deal with TBI. Neurologists, neurosurgeons deal with TBI and so on and so forth. So how do we get all those folks together? So brain health is one of those hubs. The next hub is around infectious diseases. Obviously, given the COVID pandemic, that's a, a critical topic. And our infectious disease clinical research program was, has been at the center of the DOD's response to COVID. Well, they're at the center of this particular hub, but it brings in basic scientists from microbiology and our sequencing capabilities. And then the third hub is around polytrauma around that surgical critical care initiative, which we just talked about, but tying in other critical departments and other critical efforts we have here at USU. And each hub is bringing together investigators across the university, allows for collaborations with other folks, both within the DOD research infrastructure and outside of DOD. And they're tasked with coming with two or three major questions and for them to tackle as a whole. And then the latest hub we're gonna launch is around both education and simulation. What is next in education and simulation? How do we leverage the work that's being done in augmented reality, virtual reality, to advance education across the board? And I know that's a major initiative or a major interest area for our new president, Dr. Jonathan Woodson. So I'm excited about those hubs, actually, because I think those hubs and the smart people in those hubs will solve the problems that are operationally relevant for us. Yeah, it was interesting. I saw an article not too long ago that talked about aviation, Air Force aviation training pilots completely before they even ever got in a, a real airplane to know what they're doing. And is medicine heading that way where we can train our proceduralists to really know what they're doing? Is that going to happen anytime soon? In certain spaces, yes. And even starting now, I think a robotic surgery with Da Vinci and the training systems that they the Vinci has lend themselves very nicely to basically doing the key elements of that case before you even walk into the OR. And uh, many of the GE programs have incorporated the Da Vinci training into their requirements to even scrub for a case at the console. And I, I'm not a robotic surgeon, but when I was chair of surgery, I took the Da Vinci courses 
So I can understand the power of the robot. And it's remarkable. It truly is intuitive. So I think platforms like DaVinci are going to accelerate this. We're redoing our entire anatomy lab, uh, currently a major renovation to make it in a much more technology-friendly space so we can teach anatomy in a way that's much more translatable to the future. In fact, we're going to have a robot in that anatomy space so we can teach the anatomy from the viewpoint the surgeons of the future are going to see it. So I think it's going to accelerate. The question is how quickly. You had the chance to serve as the Director of Surgical Services for NATO Rule 3 Military Medical Unit in Kandahar, Afghanistan. Tell us about that experience and any exceptional cases. And did you feel well prepared for what you encountered? Yeah, it was a remarkable experience for both me as a surgeon and then as an emerging uh, leader. You know, when we went there, for, and this was 2010 to 2011, so we got there in the summer, the battle for Kandahar was, was happening. And it was a ridiculously busy time. We had, and we published papers on this, we had 1,000 patients, we did 3,000 operations, we gave 5,000 units of blood, we have 90 massive transfusions. We had a 98% survival rate, and 85% of our business was point of injury. I mean, it came directly to us. And the majority of our patients were our own casualties, more than 50%. And from the clinical point, I definitely felt well-prepared. We talked previously about being a transplant surgeon and bringing that skill set that comes from procurements and doing vascular anastomoses and neurological anastomoses. So from a technical point of view, I learned a lot from our trauma surgeon, Rod Benfield, a trauma systems and managing the trauma patient. As residents, we had an excellent trauma experience throughout our residency, but it had been essentially a decade since that experience. So having a, a trauma medical director with me who was of that caliber, I learned a lot from him. Hopefully he learned a lot from me, but I definitely felt prepared. And I think that was an experience that you went as a good surgeon and you left as a master surgeon. But you just operated so much. I think I did 200 major cases during that particular period of time. And you asked me about an exceptional case. There were many, and we can talk about others later, but I'll tell you about one truly exceptional case because it made national headlines. I was the primary person on call and I was the chief of surgery, but there was four general surgeons and we would rotate call. And actually being on primary call was probably the best slot because you got to pick the best cases you know, when a uh, mass casualty came in. So I don't remember this case came in during a mass casualty or not, but I remember the case. So I was the primary person one of our casualties comes in and he's got a gunshot wound, an entrance wound on his lower left flank slash chest. And we went ahead, put a chest tube in, lots of blood comes out, get a chest x-ray. Cause I don't see, I don't see an exit wound. Remember in surgery, we're supposed to connect the dots for trauma. I didn't see an exit wound. So I was thinking things like bullet emboli, get a quick chest x-ray, a quick abdominal film, no a bullet, mm, what's going on. And then we take off the collar and the exit wound is in the neck. So this is a transmedia side on child wound. So it's high rent real estate. So we go to the OR expeditiously and we're starting massive transfusion protocol. And we do a median sternotomy and get in. And for some reason, I opened up the right pleural cavity first. Remember the entrance wound's on the left. And I fired a staple across the apex of the right lung because it was the bullet had, had passed through the apex of the lung. So fired a staple across that and moved on. That was actually turned out to be a very lucky move because later on when we had to do single lung ventilation, it allowed for that. And then opened up the left pleural space, divided the intracomal ligament and basically immediately rotated the lung and then started to basically tractotomies, which is where you fire stapler and try to get control 
of the injury in the hyaline lobe. And we tried to get, we did multiple maneuvers to get controlled. We, we even did one of the lung twists, which really didn't work very well. You read about it in the books, but in this case, it didn't work. We even went intrapericardially to get control of the patient's physiology, didn't like that. So after we're doing this typical damage control, we're doing this for an hour or so. And I was doing that initial case with Rod Benfield, the trauma surgeon. As he came in, good case. I said, enough's enough. I took a vascular clamp and fired, placed it across the hilum uh, of the lung and said, we're done. We're going to go and uh, we'll do damage control. So we, the clamp sticks out. You put a million, a million ties around that clamp so that no one will inadvertently take it off. And then to like put uh, your standard temporary dressing. And when we're doing the case, another lucky thing, Brian Eastridge, who was the, the JTTS director, who's a well-known trauma surgeon. Brian comes in and says, what are you guys doing? Oh, you're doing, we're, well, we just committed to doing a pneumonectomy for trauma. And, and you miss the physiology of that is not great. And Brian says, oh, you should call the lung team. I'm like, we have that? Oh yeah, we have the lung team. Great idea. So we finish up, get out of the OR. We put them in this depiction in the ICU. I call the lung team. I call it to launch. So it said, send the lung team. Absolutely. Well, so I tell, and I, of course you tell them, but I just committed to a, a, a traumatic uh, pneumonectomy. Okay. The lung team will come down. So then I proceeded, I had, at this point, I didn't know if there was an esophageal injury or a great vessel injury. So I went ahead and, you know, I did his EVD, I, I bronched him. I didn't see any aerodigestive injuries and we got a CAT scan on him because now he's stable. And remarkably, the bullet had cast the great vessels. And now it's four or six hours in. So we take him back, take him back with one of our cardiac, we had a cardiothoracic surgeon who was hanging out before he was going up to a, a, a fob. So Jared Annabelle, I take him back and we do a completion pneumonectomy. And then that case finishes and we get to the ICU and all of a sudden the lung team shows up and Sandra Wanick shows up with the lung team and they're like, okay, we got it. I'm like, here you go. And by the time I'm tired, so I go to go back to my room and go to take a nap or go to bed or something. And then a few hours later, they call me and they said, hey, we want to move the patient because he's on single lung ventilation and he didn't like it. So we're going to put him on ECMO. I'm like, you're going to put him on ECMO? You guys can do that? Oh yeah, we can do that. We have a portable ECMO generator. So I went back to the hospital and saw this, them, they calculated him, put him on ECMO, this portable ECMO generator. And then they flew that guy back to Lawrenceville. And I think he went to the local uh, German hospital, Regensburg, because that's where they took the ECMO patients. And essentially the guy, the patient walked out of Lawrenceville two weeks later. And it made the cover of Stars and Stripes, and it was a remarkable case. And now if I have it straight, that was the first patient's traumatic pneumonectomy in theater. It was, it was an exceptional case. Throughout your career, you've taken on multiple leadership opportunities. Can you tell us why it is essential for surgeons to be involved in leadership and what traits or skills you developed that made you successful in your leadership endeavors? Yeah, and the leadership really crystallized for me in that experience in Afghanistan. We just talked about how crazy busy it was, and it was it wasn't a sprint, it was a marathon. And at times it was tough. There's no doubt about it. But what I had learned, what what I seen in others, both good and bad experiences when it comes to leadership. Sometimes the bad experiences, you learn glean more. And then what I formulated in that experience in Afghanistan was a following approach to leadership. Really listen, learn, learn what they're, you know, if it's a briefing, read the briefing, read the background material, really learn and make your decision. No slow note, make your decision. Now, you don't have to do it reflexively. It doesn't have to be in the second. It doesn't have to be a stereotypical decision, but make a decision. Then empower folks to carry out the decision. You're not going to, if you're going to micromanage, you're going to fail. Hold those people accountable in a professional way. 
we made the decision to go through the left door, not the right door, how to go, and then recover if needed. If you may, if, you, if the left door was the wrong door, okay, well, let's, let's turn around and go try the other door. And I think as surgeons, we definitely are good at making decisions. We're trained that way. We're also very good at recovering. You know, we've all had surgery in many respects is about what do you, when do you go to the operating room? What do you do in the operating room when things aren't going swimmingly? And when do you go back to the operating room? And that's part of that recovery piece. So I think surgeons, we can be very effective leaders, but we have to be aware of our stereotypes. Sometimes you make decisions too quickly or in the moment. And there are times to pause in those decisions, but they, that pause should not be measured in weeks or typically should be measured in weeks or months. That's the no slow nose. So I think my surgical career really helped me with my leadership career. And that's the, my approach to leadership. You, one of the things that, that you're very well known for, and I had the opportunity to interact with you, is developing the knowledge, skills, and ability metrics within the military known as KSAs. Tell us a little about your motivation that, that led you into that project to quantify battlefield readiness. Yeah, a combination of things. Care for those patients in Afghanistan, our wounded warriors on, on the wards over at Bethesda and Walter Reed. I mean, not just me, many of us realize that these critical skills that were attained during the crucible of conflict, we couldn't lose it. We couldn't undergo what's called the Walker dip. And the Walker dip is, is attributed, rightfully so, to Alice Dave Walker, who was the Surgeon General of the UK and became a friend later on before he passed away. And he described how during conflict, you get really good. We talked about the experience in Afghanistan with a 98% survival rate. But the conflict goes away and those skills perish and you have to regain those. Well, we looked around and not just myself, a bunch of folks that had come out of, out of these experiences and said, we, the nation, our patients can't afford another Walker dip. How do we ensure that we maintain both currency and competency of uh, these critical skills? And this is, it was almost a story of change. And, and as I develop my approach to leadership, if you're going to lead, oftentimes you have to change things. And when it comes to change, you need a problem. The timing has to be right. Your solution set has to be unassailable. Then you need to socialize it up and down and you need to be persistent. Well, for the KSAs, the problem was perishable skills, as we said. The timing was right. We had the National Defense Authorization Act in 2012. At the time, we had aligned leadership, including our, I mentioned Dr. Woodson before, our president. General Robb was the head of the DHA, really cared about these issues. We had to develop an unassailable solution set, which is the whole clinical readiness program with the KS effort. We had to socialize it up and down. I hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of talks and briefs and persistence were still at it. So what are the significant advantages to the KSA scoring process and what areas represent a challenge in interpreting readiness using KSAs? Yeah. So one, just before we talk about the score itself, remember the KSA approach is a, it's a clinical readiness program. And we, we developed this in conjunction initially with the American College of Surgeons. And it's the three-legged stool. One leg of the stool is the metric of practice, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But the other two legs of the stool are assessment of skills and knowledge. So with the KSA approach, whether you're a general surgeon, emergency medicine physician, critical care physician, orthopedic surgeon, urologist, there's a knowledge assessment that measures your baseline knowledge and gives you CME for it. And this is the knowledge that's a gap between your normal practice and the expeditionary environment. There are skills assessment at the highest level, many about the asset plus course or the COPS plus course 
that has been remarkable in assessing both proficiency and autonomy on all those key exposures that a surgeon needs downrange. And if you look at those courses, when folks come in, less than 5% demonstrate proficiency and autonomy, and more than 90% have both proficiency and autonomy after the two-day course, and they maintain that for 18 to 20, 24 months. And then we've seen the results of this whole program out of the experience in HTA, where surgeons that had been through the knowledge assessment, been through the SEALs assessment in Asset Plus or Cost Plus, and had the threshold value we'll talk about in a moment, were successful when you looked at it in a very rigorous academic way. So the metric, which is the third leg of the school stool, extracts the rigorous value of practice in a quantifiable manner, key to operational expectations. Uh, and that's the beauty of it. What you do in a day-to-day basis, there are elements of everything you do. I do a transplant. There's elements of that are, as we talked about before, relevant to a combat casualty care mission. You have a very difficult gallbladder. Those skills are in operating and working through that are translatable as two as well. So how do you take the pieces of that and reassemble it for a metric of baseline practice? Because even with the most robust skills and knowledge assessments, you still need to practice to be ready. And then the biggest challenge is ensuring that we have the workload within our MTFs to meet those thresholds. These MTFs are military treatment hospitals and our partnerships where we work with civilian communities as well. And then you're at a very tactical level, capturing that workload outside of those military hospitals. You know, it's something we're working through. The Air Force has been very innovative in kind of leading the charge and have a solution set that we're adopting. So one of the things that that I read recently was an article that you contributed to with Dr. Woodson about the importance of military civilian partnerships in in really helping achieve this goal of maintaining sustaining competency uh, readiness. Can you tell us a little bit more about the importance of those partnerships and what we can do to make them better? Yeah, so the military civilian partnerships go back to our foundation and our ethos. If you look back to World War I and even the formation of the American College of Surgeons, that was military surgeons that came together. In fact, very early on in the World War I experience, War II experience, certain academic medical centers at the time had their own field hospitals that they staffed and sent overseas. And there's numerous stories of, of those hospitals and the excellence they brought. If you read Surgeon the Soldier by Dr. Churchill, who was this iconic Harvard Mass General surgeon, that he exemplifies what a military civilian partnership should be. And we've tried to build off that formula with military civilian partnerships. One good example, just at the strategic level, military civilian partnerships is our partnership with the American College of Surgeons. You know, we have a shared ethos. We work together on education and training, helped launch the KSA effort of that, looked at quality within our, our hospitals, looked at trauma systems and developed the blue book, which is the blueprint for these clinical military civilian partnerships. And then the military civilian partnerships themselves, you know, they need to augment, not replace our military hospitals. And I'd love to see a world where those military civilian hospitals not just train our people, but are are part of our system in which we regulate combat patients too. You could see casualties coming over from overseas, our MTFs being our first line of defense caring for them. When there's overflow, we could augment, we could move patients to those military civilian partnerships. And that's almost the goal that was outlined in the Zero Preventable Death report from the National Academies back in 2016. You were recently appointed as the Dean of the Hebert School of Medicine at USU. 
You were responsible for the medical education of 680 uniformed medical students and more than 340 military and civilian graduate students each year. What programs fall under the Dean of the USU School of Medicine? So under the Dean of the School of Medicine, we have the undergraduate medical education or medical students, which is where the university and the school started. But we also have our graduate programs and our graduate programs award and award masters and PhDs across multiple different domains. The school itself has 19 different departments, mixture of basic science and clinical departments, 13 centers, which are all aligned to different departments. We have 2000 employees. That's a mixture of direct contract support through nonprofit partners like the Henry Jackson Foundation, the Geneva Foundation that work hand in hand with our folks. We have our active duty faculty that are billeted at the school itself. We have our civilian faculty that are that work on our campus. And those are basic scientists, clinicians, clinical scientists as well. We have all of our support staff. And of course, we have our national faculty like both of you, uh, which are 5,000 physicians across the entire military health system. So it, it is a completely integrated like, medical center. So you're not new to USU, but you're new to this position. What would you say is your major short-term initiative now that you've stepped into this chair? Yeah, I have three goals and four critical success factors. I've been doing this job for the last 14 months. So the goals are, number one, we're a military medical school. It sounds simple, but you just need to oh, we're a military medical school. We embrace the uniqueness that we are. That's our mission. Number two, probably the most important one is we graduate the product with DOD. You know, we need that product that whether you're on the carrier doing that power section or Afghanistan taking care of this man, a complex blast injury, or you're deployed and taking care of a patient with bad pneumonia or where there's no safety net, we need to graduate the product that DOD needs, which is, I think, a bar or a step above what society needs. And then finally, as far as goals go, we're an integral part of the military health system. The KSA program that we talked about was developed out of USU. When innovation is needed, come to USU and we'll, we'll answer it for the entire system. As far as critical success factors, I'm taking over, I had four. Number one is we just launched our LCME accreditation cycle. That's the licensing body for all medical schools. It's an 18 month cycle. We have a phenomenal team that's addressed that and is moving that out. That ends with our accreditation visit in January of not next year, but the following year. So we got 18 months. So that's a critical success factor. That's really obvious. Number two is organizational efficiency. You know, like any large organization, you lose efficiency. So we've adopted something called objectives and key results from a book called Measure What Matters. We started doing this when I was chair of surgery in the department, in the center that I ran, and it essentially sets objectives, key results, and metrics for the entire organization. So now the School of Medicine has 500 objectives and 1,800 key results that we measure. We have a process of using program reviews and offsites keep the organization moving forward. The third critical success factor has been develop of a, back to those KSAs, a KSA report card for our graduating student, our medical students. So they, they can function as a general medical officer or an operational medical officer right off the bat in a quantifiable, accessible way. So for example, we have our military unique curriculum. During that military unique curriculum, our students have to place a tourniquet in the field. Well, now that's assessed that they do it successfully. That's in their KSA report card. Or another KSA define the role of TXA in the master transfusion, transic acids and adjunct to master transfusions. 
Well, where were they taught that? Okay, it was in their pharmacology lecture. It was assessed and they passed that question. So that's the that's a one of those critical success factors. And the final one is the hub research hub that I mentioned. So let's say you have a college student who is interested in military medicine and is accepted for an HPSP scholarship and also is accepted to go to USU. How would you counsel that student in making that decision? Yeah, and I'm an HPSP graduate. At the time, I didn't know USU existed. But that's one of the our challenges, get the word out. This is an opportunity to do that, honestly. You've already made the probably the best decision. I'm going to serve and I'm going to take care of our nation's heroes. So you made a great decision. But in order to do that, I think you're best served if we accept you, of course, and coming to USU, because our motto, caring for those who go in harm's way, is what our focus is on. With respect to other schools, we're very competitive. We have a large research base, over $400 million a year, $400 million a year in research funding. We publish over 2,000 papers a year. We have a dedicated and outstanding faculty. We had hands-on clinical rotations for our students in our system. So we, we've sit in the top tier quartile of medical schools that combined all of those elements. And then as Dean, I looked at two key numbers from the questionnaire that's administered to our graduating seniors. Are they prepared for residency? And how is the experience in medical school? And we get above 95% on both of those questions. And that's higher than national averages. And so... I would say if you want to serve, then USU should be your first choice as we prepare you for that operational environment and that transition to residency. And we can talk further about it. We have data that supports that statement that you are prepared, whether you go into that operational environment or you step into that GME training program, you're prepared and oftentimes more prepared than some of our some of your civilian peers. So many military physicians hold instructor and professorships under the Abair School of Medicine. Tell us about starting the professorship pathway and when can military medical providers apply? You know, our professorship pathway is fairly similar to most medical schools or academic centers in that you have instructors, assistant, associate, and full professors. But it really starts with those assistant professors. Typically, you apply for your assistant professor position when you finish your residency or fellowship. And you do that through your chair. Every specialty has a clinical chair. And depending on the size of the department, some chairs manage that directly. Other chairs have an associate chair that handles faculty development. You apply through your chair and the assistant professors are giving. You apply, you become an assistant professor. And then the goal is to progress along, along those academic ranks. And we want you to progress along those academic ranks from assistant to associate and associate to full professor. And when, as you move forward, we look at that in a, in a very holistic way. And there's key domains. There's scholarly productivity. How many papers are you writing? You don't have to be the first author in every paper, but you need scholarly productivity that moves you forward. If you're on a certain research track, there's how many grants that you're getting. Again, the idea of you're expanding the scholarly profile. There's your role as an educator. Are you what we call level two or level three educator? Are you a program director and an associate program? There's your national reputation or international reputation. As you move to associate professor, the expectation is that you have a national reputation in the MHS, outside of the MHS, you're sitting on national committees. So you work with your chair to move forward from assistant to associate and eventually to full professor. We also have a faculty development team that's led by one of our associate deans, Dr. Jessica Survey, 
who goes out to all the MTFs and does direct faculty development. And she's another great resource for kind of entering into the system. And we're here for you. We will help you, mentor you, move you through, because we want as many folks to progress to associate and full professors as possible. We had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Woodson and asked him about what was the biggest challenge he would foresee as, as being president of the university. And we'll ask you the same thing in your role as dean. What do you see as your greatest challenge and what are you going to do to overcome that? I think the greatest challenge that we're all facing right now is where we are with our military hospitals, our military treatment facilities. Our military treatment facilities, and we all know this story well, that they've been under-resourced, both fiscally and from a staffing perspective. And that's in the context of a, a very difficult landscape in American medicine. There's a there's a national nursing shortage. We all know about the great, great nation. So everyone is battling for nurses currently. Healthcare systems are losing billions of dollars because of that. And it's not just nurses, it's specialty techs as well. There's a looming physician shortage that's coming along. We don't have enough GME slots within the medicine to meet the civilian demand, much less our demand. So what are the risks of our MPS not being resourced appropriately? I think there's risk to force generation, training the next generation, UME, GME, allied health. I think there's risk to force sustainment, the KSA story that we're just talking about, keeping our skills up. I think there's risk to combat casualty care. You know, how do we take care of casualties that are coming back? And then, of course, the risk of our benefit. There's, we have some very nice data that shows that our quality is as good or better than many of our Brazilian peers. So that's the biggest challenge, I think. And why do I care? Well, I grew up in the system. I love the system. I want to ensure that our patients get the best care on the planet. And I need clinical rotations for our medical students. I'm also the co-director of the National Capital Consortium, the co-chair of the National Capital Consortium. So I have 700 residents and fellows to worry about. So that's why I care. How do you fix the problem? Many of us have framed those risks to senior leaders. And those senior leaders are, are taking those risks seriously. And we're undergoing a process currently to define the strategy, the future of those MTFs, how to adequately resource those MTFs. You mentioned Dr. Woodson and having him as president back in the military health system is really the kind of the missing piece of the puzzle to move it forward. And I'm cautiously optimistic that we will wind up with a military health system that is ready for the next conflict, the next generation. One of the things that has been discussed before is that being prepared is going to not only involve the active duty forces, but also the reserves and medical reserves. And we, we saw that obviously in OIF and OEF. What are your thoughts about having students graduate from USHUS with a reserve commitment rather than an active duty commitment? Yeah, it's a, it's a staying provocative question. And you're right. The total force is the is the answer. You know, most of the medical force for the army relies on the reserve component side. And as, as you mentioned, we all deployed with our reserve component, our reserve component colleagues. In fact, the Afghanistan story I told you before, half of our complement were reserve component. I am not adverse to innovation, and I think we absolutely need to be able to figure a way to fully integrate the reserve components in our total force in the military health system. That includes the KSA effort we talked about. That effort awards CME and makes you a better surgeon. There's no reason why you should, your drilling shouldn't be obtaining your clinical KSA points. The same thing goes for the medical student side. I would not be adverse to have a cadre of our medical students have a reserve commitment. It's something we'd have to look at. 
But again, in order for us to be ready for the future, it's not just the active duty component, it's the reserve component, it's the total force, it's those military civilian partners, it's the VA. We need to look through a much more strategic lens than we potentially have in the past. So I know that fitness is a big part of your life. Can you tell us how you stay active and why is it essential to your success? And what tips do you have for other medical providers that are busy? Yeah, I think fitness is it's an outlet. My routine and my, well, my keys to fitness is consistency. So, and my routine essentially is one day I do strength training, lift weights. The other day I do cardio. At this cycle in my life, my cardio is is on a bike as a cyclist. In the past, I've done triathlons and run, but cycling is my focus right now. And basically, I find time pretty much every day, unless there's a clinical commitment, to do that. I do take a day off a week. I find as you get a little bit older. Your body needs to recover, which has been a sobering concept. But it, it gives me a time and space to not think that much about work and some of these other issues. And, and cycling is actually ideal for that. As opposed to running, if you're like, fine, when I run a long distance, my mind would start thinking about work and stuff like that. When you're cycling, you can't do that because you have to pay attention. Because if you don't pay attention, you die. Uh, I like climbing on a bike. Uh, the suffering also helps in an odd way. And it's just become part and parcel of who I am. You could have another hobby. I think you just need an outlet. You need an outlet for that work-life balance. Your family's a key part of that outlet. I have a phenomenal wife and two kids, two daughters. One's a freshman at BU, one's a junior high school, and they're just great. So between fitness and my family, I find that work-life balance, which is so critical to not getting burned out. Well, I think we have time for one more interesting clinical case that you encountered while you deployed. So we talked about that ECMO case as being the most interesting case. Uh, I'll tell you about a case that was dramatic to everyone else but me. And this was this was another thoracic case. And I don't know why these are both thoracic cases. But this was a patient that came in with a gunshot wound to the chest, unilateral, wasn't one of those, wasn't transmutostinal. Put a chest tube in, put a second chest tube in, two liters come out immediately. And literally, the patient had gotten the OR within minutes. And I do the thoracotomy and I do that tractotomy. You mentioned that previously, it's where you basically fire stapler along the track. I think I do two loads of stapler and audible bleeding, PA, uh, pulmonary artery injury. And literally, it's audible and and this patient loses like six liters of blood before we get to that, that particular point. Although, I, like I told you, we got to the OR very quickly. And this was a patient who came directly from the point of injury and five or 10 minutes away. So within 30 minutes of being injured or 40 minutes of being injured, he's in the OR. So I fire that staple twice, auto bleeding. I put my finger on it, maneuver number one. And then I just get a pledged chicken. I think I put one figure of eight. It was technically like the easiest operation ever. And the bleeding stopped. And then we close him up and the guy gets exhibited the next day. Everyone in the hospital is like, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this was the easiest case of the week. And the guy exhibited and he was very grateful and it was just a great case. So you mentioned your kids. Let's say 100 years from now, great, great grandkids are reading the history books. What would you want them to know about the legacy of Eric Elster and his time in military medicine at Ushus? The people you train and inspire. The people I train have been inspired at every level. I, I think that's probably the most important thing. We're, as surgeons, we're very good at mentorship. In the military, we're very good at mentorship. 
And I learned this from Dr. Norman Rich, who was our, you know, our founding chairman, truly an icon in surgery. And Dr. Rich would describe it as pulling those from behind forward. And I think if people remember me in the same light as Dr. Rich, inspiring people, training them, you know, and, and all the other stuff, of course, advancing the science, but fundamentally inspiring folks and training the next generation that I want. We've been speaking with retired Navy Captain, Dr. Eric Elster on Wardock's podcast. Eric, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you both for doing this. This is preserving the stories or the insights is, is so critical. And so I can't thank you both for the honor of doing this, but for doing it for all of us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.